Salvation is the topic. That's a big topic. It's a major theme. And we're going to look at it with the idea that life is really, life that's really life. And I'm drawing that from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Christ, um, in the image, in the parable of the Good Shepherd, says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, notice that phrase, and have it to the full. In some translations, that means, I have come they might have life and have it abundantly. It means literally to overflow. Life that cannot be contained. Life that is seen by everyone around you and, and desired. It's the life that we're going to see illustrated in an illustration at the end of this sermon. I think that you're going to be very familiar with. Um, salvation is more than just an insurance policy for eternal life. I think a lot of people think of salvation in terms of pie in the sky. Next slide. The scope of salvation is not just pie in the sky. Um, it's not just an insurance policy. That is oftentimes a critique of those of us who preach the gospel, that you're just trying to get into heaven and you're not really concerned about this life. But Jesus was ultimately concerned about this life. The thesis this morning of my my talk is that eternal life begins when you begin to embrace Christ. And that life is a life that overflows, a life that spills out into the lives of others. It begins with a new identity. We become who we're meant to be. I believe that God created us with a purpose, and oftentimes we're unaware of that purpose. I know when I was a kid, my grandfather, who happened to be a preacher, prophesied that I would become a preacher because I was such a loudmouth. And, um, and that has come true. So sometimes things work out in different ways than one expects it. But growing up, I never thought I was going to be a preacher. I, believe it or not, I wanted to be a politician. And I was, going to go, I was actually accepted into law school. I was planning uh, to, to go to law school and then work my way into politics. It would have been a horrible politics. Just ask my wife sometime. I, I really am not... Uh, that kind of uh, a personality. I don't think I would have functioned very well. But, but God knew what he was up to, and I, I think I'm becoming what I was meant to be. So we get a new identity in Christ, and that's part of our salvation. We get a new peace and security, and we're going to talk about that big time in this sermon. Next slide. Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, justified means made right with God, since God is satisfied now because when God looks on us, he sees our faith in Christ, and that covers our sins. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We call that positional righteousness because we're in Christ, 
we're righteous. Even though we still continue to sin, we still continue to fall short, because we placed our faith in Christ, we have this new identity. We have this new strength in our lives. We stand in God's grace. Now, one um, illustration of this security comes from the Manhattan Beach Pier. At least it speaks to me. It's one of my favorite places in our community. And when I read in the paper that there are going to be heavy surf warnings, I go to the Manhattan Beach Pier, high tide. And sometimes the waves will get up to 10 or 12 feet. I've been there when the waves have been 15 feet. And that is just five feet below the bottom of the pier. And to stand out there when those powerful waves come through is to experience nature. I suppose it's like watching Niagara Falls. Um, And you see the wave approach, building larger and larger, and then right under your feet you see it move away and towards the beach, and you hear it crash. And it's, it's, it's a thing of beauty to watch. It's, it's, a, it's an e-ticket ride. For those of you who are old enough to remember the early days of Disneyland. It, believe it or not, Disneyland used to, you had to buy a packet of tickets. And they were A, B, C, D, E. As they went up, they got better rides. E-ticket was the Matterhorn. All right. From Manhattan Beach, this is an e-ticket ride. Watching the waves crash. But you can also, from that vantage point... Look at Catalina on the horizon. You can see the seagulls and the pelicans moving over the surface of the waters. The different colors in the water. And it's marvelous to behold. Now contrast that with you being in the water with 15-foot waves. Or let's say in a small boat with inadequate oars to really get out of trouble. Think of what you would be thinking about. You wouldn't be contemplating pelicans. You'd be contemplating death or dismemberment or what are you going to do to survive? And all the beauty that's there would be lost to you because you don't have a secure foundation. You know, the Bible is full of illustrations like the Manhattan Beach Pier. A mighty fortress is our God. A rock we can stand on, David talks about. Some place from which we can see the world as it is and not be afraid. That's what salvation is all about. That's what salvation in this life, the the beginning of a new life. That's what God is talking about here. Now, how do we get into it? The way in. Meeting Jesus, and here's that classic text. It's a fascinating text. I never get tired of this one. We have a leader of the Pharisees, a man who in his community would have been considered to be of the holiest men around. He would be a man who was so holy that when he walked through a market, he would gather his robes around him, lest his robe would touch against someone who might be a Gentile or who might be a woman. Pharisees never came in contact with women unless they were their wives, because they might be unclean, and a Pharisee could not risk becoming unclean. He's a leader. He is uh, part of the Jewish ruling council, 
And we know from the context he's seen Christ work miracles. Now, notice how he comes to Christ. What's the setting the author gives us? By night. He comes to Jesus by night. What do you suspect might be behind that? Yeah, he doesn't want to be seen by whom? His colleagues, the rest of the ruling council. Because this is taking a risk. This young rabbi is a radical. He is saying things and doing things which have never been said or done before. He is claiming to be God. And Nicodemus comes covering his bets and says, Rabbi, which means teacher, godly teacher, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher that has come from God. Because no one could do these signs except for you. He's a seeker. He's trying to cover his his bets here. He doesn't want to lose his status with his colleagues. But there's something about Jesus that is powerful. And he comes to him and he says, no one could do these signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replies, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That phrase, born again, by the way, is just the most common translation we have of the Greek phrase. It could mean, it could be translated, born from above or born anew. I kind of like born anew because we're not used to hearing it. Jesus says you must be born anew. What he means by that is you must be spiritually born. We're spiritually born by believing in Christ, by meeting him and trusting him and accepting him. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water. That would be natural birth. And the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus makes it very clear, graphic terminology. No one in that time or this time would misunderstand. Well, most, almost no one would misunderstand. There are some people who have misunderstood. But uh, what he means to say is there's physical birth and there's spiritual birth. I'm talking about physical birth. So don't be confused when I say you must be born again. This is a spiritual dynamic. And Nicodemus is perplexed. We know, though, that at the end of the story of the gospel, Nicodemus expresses faith. So even though this very, very classic confrontation, this, this picture of a seeker is, is unresolved at this point, it's going to lead to faith. And Nicodemus is going to be a believer towards the end of his life. And that brings us to uh, the way in. How does one become saved? How does one establish this new life, this spiritual birth? Well, these are the basics. Salvation 101. If you were taking a course um, for those who really wanted to know what's involved in the doctrine of salvation, if I were teaching the course, these are the points I would make and try to drive home. First of all, Sin is the problem. Sin is what we're being saved from. 
Sin steals meaning from life, and it isolates us from a loving God. Sin is that which robs life of meaning. Think of the classic sins. Um, Think of gluttony. Gluttony is eating more than we need. Uh, Gluttony is a sin that's a cheat. You know, we eat because we think it's going to give us relief. We think it's going to give us comfort. And it doesn't, so we eat more. Think of lust. Lust is um, practiced because people feel insecure. They feel lonely. They feel like this will bring them comfort, but it doesn't. In every category, fame, wealth, When that becomes the idol, when that becomes the thing you're depending on to meet your needs, to help you in this life, to make sense of this life, it always lets you down. And worse than that, it isolates you from the one who made you. We're told in the Bible that sin is something that God cannot look at. When we practice sin, we grieve the heart of God. Sin isolates us from God and for his grace, which he longs to pour out into our lives. But God has a solution, and that solution is found in the man Christ Jesus, who is undiminished deity. We think of Christ in terms of the early church councils as being perfect humanity and undiminished deity. He's the the wondrous combination of what a man or a human was supposed to be and what God is. God chooses to send Christ to become human and restore the love relationship between us. Salvation is about understanding God's love and learning to love ourselves. Not to love ourselves, but learning how to love others. I think God wants two things from us. He wants us to love and to be loved. He wants to understand God's incredible love for us, and he wants to teach us how to love others. And salvation is about that. It's very easy, I think, to understand this idea of loving these wonderful little children who are delight to watch. Uh, Any parent in this room, I think, if you ask them, would you like those children to grow up and and learn to love and be loved? Well, that would be close to the top of your expectations. And to love God and be loved by Him, to love others and accept love, that is part of the new spiritual life. That is part of what Christ comes to give us. So God chose to send Christ to be the remedy, to take our place, to die for our sins, And in that, he expresses his love for us, and we, in turn, can respond by learning to love others. Next one. Jesus Christ died for you. In doing that, the Bible says, he defeated death and fear. Fear is, death is the ultimate fear. I think it's the thing that hangs behind all other fears. And drives them, empowers them. When you, when you remove death from the equation, when you believe firmly that because Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, 
And as he promises in the book of Philippians, we shall in the same way rise from the dead and we'll have a body like Christ's resurrected body. Then the sting of death is gone. The fear of death is no longer lurking behind every other fear we have. So in Christ on the cross, death is defeated and with it, the source of fear. Next one, please. Spiritual, be- uh, spiritual birth begins when you admit that you are lost and in deep trouble. People can't be saved until they realize that they are lost. They really don't need to be saved until they realize that they're sick, that they've got a real problem. One time when I was a kid, I can't remember how old, but under 10, um, I had chronic eye problems, and, uh, and we went on this holiday in the mountains, and uh, my eyes were dilated. To, doctors could look at them, and, and I, like an impetuous kid, decided to go off on a hike with some other friends. But the other friends went back, and I said, I'm going to go farther, but I couldn't see very well. This is really crazy, but, you know, kids are like this sometimes. And I wandered and wandered and kept thinking I could find my way back, but not being able to see carefully. Um, after about 30 minutes of wandering, I finally had to admit that I was lost and I needed help. And I remember sitting down and praying and saying, you know, I don't know how to solve this problem. Well, that's a good illustration of what it's like to realize that that you have no answers. And that's where God can really begin to work in our lives and salvation can take root. What I did is I sat down and as I was praying, I heard a truck. And I thought in my young mind, if there's a truck, there's a road. If there's a road, it's going to lead somewhere. I can follow the sign, the sound to the, to the road and then walk down the road and Actually, I saw a sign that said Crystal Lake, one mile. So I walked to Crystal Lake and waited there, and my parents arrived about 30 minutes later because uh, they thought, well, he's probably gone to the lake. And, and so it all worked out. But that began with me realizing I was lost and admitting it to myself and saying, you know, it's time to start taking steps. You can't just keep wandering and pretending you're not lost. What's wonderful about us in a spiritual sense is once we make that admission, the Holy Spirit is with us the whole way. And we are told in the word of God that the spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are his. When you make that initial belief statement, when you say to Christ, I believe that you are the savior, I believe that you are God who was sent to this world to reveal the way out of this mess, to give it some sense in order that we might have a new life. That's when the Spirit becomes your guide and your helper and leads you on to the truth. Theologically, salvation is not just an event, but it's a process. It's a process that begins with your admitting that you can't save yourself, C.S. Lewis says, you've got to surrender that. 
We have this rebellious streak and we want to keep hanging on to the fact that we think we can save ourselves. If we just get our minds around it, if we just marshal our resources. But when we finally realize we're lost and we're helpless, we're in that boat and the waves are bearing down on us, that's when we have to place our faith in Christ. And Christ, through the Holy Spirit, comes to our aid. Salvation begins with that. That sacrifice of ourself and our willingness to try to save ourselves. And then it moves forward in stages. The first major stage is called regeneration. That's when we're born anew. Nicodemus comes by by night to Christ and believes in him and is born anew. And then comes the process of continual surrender, where we give up more and more aspects of our life to Christ and say, you know, I... I really can't handle my money very well. I want to give that over to you. I I don't handle my sex life very well. I want to give that over to you. And this is called sanctification. Becoming more Christ-like in our lives. It's a long process. It sometimes takes a lot of us, most of our lives to get there. Some people experience sanctification very quickly. And in the last stage in salvation is the transition from this life to a new life in heaven. And we call that glorification. So the whole package, you might say, from God calling us to our arrival with new bodies and a glorified life in heaven, that whole process is salvation. And that's what we're talking about. But usually when people talk about salvation, they think of that Nicodemus experience, coming to Jesus and admitting that he is the answer. He is the solution. He is the process. Next one. So what difference will spiritual birth make in my life? How is it going to change me? Well, first of all, if it's real, there's going to be a dramatic change in values and practices. We're going to begin to weigh things in the scales of eternity, so to speak. Uh, choices we make, we begin to think of in terms of different terms. How is this going to affect my life? How is this going to be? Is it going to be important in 30 years that I made this decision? That I invested this time? That I, I gave my energies to this project? Is it going to have eternal consequences? It's really a shift in values. With that shift comes a profound sense of peace with God. This confidence that um, we are now in the middle of God's program. That things are beginning to work together for good, as Romans 8.28 says. Those who are called by God can relax in his goodness. Because God is going to cause things to work together and to build into something which is great and good, and blessing. Profound sense of peace with God. A hunger for God's word. This is um, a good sign of health. I was telling people this morning in our pre-sermon that um, whenever a child of mine growing up would say, Dad, I'm hungry, I would answer by saying, that's a sign of health. Uh, And and Lindsay can testify to that. Now, uh, 
That was kind of a joke, but it was true. To be hungry is good because that means your body is processing food and it's time to feed it again. What they meant was, give me some food. I was making a philosophical point. Well, uh, it's a philosophical point that is true. And when you are growing in Christ, you're going to be hungering after the word of God. It's one of the great evidences that you've moved from one stage of spiritual life to another. When you want to feed upon the word of God because you feel hunger, you desire to know more of God. You want him to be richer and deeper in terms of relationship with you. And finally, it gives you a new sense of security that allows you to take risks. And I think this is a part of what Christ talked about when he said abundant life. The ability to to stand on the pier and to look out and to get involved in a world that is dangerous. Uh, To do things that you wouldn't normally do when you're trying to cover your bets. That's what the abundant life is all about. And I want to use an illustration, one that you'll be familiar with, to, to make this point. It's a story of a great man who you know something about if you've watched the movie Chariots of Fire. You're familiar with the actor on the left. His name is Ian. And he played the man on the right. His name is Eric Little. Eric Little was a fantastic Runner, He, he um, in the 24 Olympics, set a new world record in the 400 meters. Um, but his life began in China. He was the son of missionaries. And those missionaries uh, inculcated into him a love of Christ. When he was five, his parents decided he and his older brother should go home to England and go into a boarding school for uh, sons of missionary parents, and, and so he did. They were with the London Bible Society, missions in China. And from five till college age, he lived in England, only saw his parents when they came home on furlough, and they would go to Edinburgh. At school, he became fantastically skilled in running games. He also was good at, at uh, rugby, really quite a national star later on, and at cricket. So all the three great things that Brits do to distinguish themselves as young men, he was good at. He was also fairly attractive, and he was a good speaker. Well, he went to the University of Edinburgh, and there he uh, began to compete internationally and nationally, and began to be known as the Flying Scot. Now, Edinburgh had a um, locomotive called the Flying Scotsman, which broke records in speed. And so it was appropriate when you had a really fast runner to call him the Flying Scot. And that's going to lead to his famous bid to run in the Olympics. You know the story. By the way, the story, Chariots of Fire, has taken some historical liberties. It's a good story, and I affirm it in general. But uh, there's some things which I'm not going to go into because Lindsay said I shouldn't. that are uh, not quite historically accurate. In any case, he doesn't compete in his best race, which is the 100-yard dash, because the heat, 100-meter dash, because the heat is run on a Sunday, and he says, I'm not going to do it. Uh, You don't. You you keep the Sabbath holy. 
so in turn, he, he trains for and competes in the 400. Now, this is the end of the 400. The 400 is an incredibly difficult race to run. I used to run it in high school. We used to call it the 440 in the days of yards. Uh, it's a hard race because it's painful most of the way. Um, the first 220, you feel really good. But then it becomes very painful. You can try to keep running as fast as you can. But what's going to happen is in that last hundred yards, you're going to have what runners call tying up. The acid in your muscles becomes so concentrated that you just can't move them. And people are going to come flying by you and and score. So um, what usually happens with a racer running the 400 is you run a fast 220 and then you coast and you kick the last hundred yards. That's the classic strategy for the 400. Um, Eric Little trained, and his fastest race before the Olympics was 49.6, which is really fast. My fastest 400 was 52.6. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot of distance. Uh, And I wasn't a great runner. But on the day of the Olympics, Eric Little decided, and by the way, this is accurate in the movie, when he, um, when he came to his kick, his last part of the race, he would throw his head back and open his mouth, which is very unusual behavior for a runner. Um, you're supposed to stay focused, your head is supposed to stay down, you're supposed to work on your dynamics, your, your um, motion. Uh, and, and not become distracted. And Eric Little broke those rules, but that was the way he run. He ran. And, and he decides in this race, because of that, that American to his left, who was very fast, that if he let that American get close to him, he was going to lose the race. So what Eric Little does in this race is he takes a great risk. He sprints the whole way and is able to hold on. And in doing that, he... Um, He took two seconds off of his best time ever, which is just unheard of in track. And he wins the race and instantly becomes world famous. Next slide. He went back to Edinburgh that year and graduated. By the way, as already been mentioned, Bill and I went to Edinburgh. And we are very familiar with this place because that's where we would go into school, in a theology school right there. Well, here he is being carried on the shoulders of his fellow graduates. And then he announced to the world that he wasn't going to seek a life in athletics. He wasn't going to go into uh, any one of the number of things which were open to him, but he was going to go back to China. He wanted to go back and to teach in uh, a mission school that his parents were involved with and, and to train children in the gospel. And he did that and um, made his way back to China. There he met and uh, married Florence McKenzie. This is a picture of not their wedding day, but when he was the best man and she was the maid of honor in another wedding. But um, he met This lovely young Scottish, I'm sorry, she's Scottish, but she's from Canada, so she's a Canadian Scot. And and they had three daughters together and and really loved working in uh, in China. 
he um, was a very, very competitive person all of his life and continued to run. And that, of course, would draw people to him and especially children. But he would compete against the French and the Japanese and Chinese. And he rarely lost a race unless it was uh, he was ill or something. So he still remained uh, quite an athlete late into his life. But in the 40s, things began to go bad uh, for Christians in China because there were tensions within the nation itself between the Maoists and the nationalists. And externally, the empire of Japan was making uh, war sounds and, and finally invaded China and um, sent all or ruled that all foreigners had to go home. And so the Littles decide that Florence and the two girls, she's pregnant with the third, should go back to Canada. And so they do. And Eric stays because he's got 300 kids in his school. And he doesn't want to leave them. <clears throat> so uh, to make a long story short, he gets transferred to a, a prison camp, a um, internment camp. And this is a picture of him. Um, very, very cold winters without provisions. Uh, yet he always maintains a very, very positive attitude and um, pours his life into comforting these 300 kids. Some of them were the children of missionaries who had died and others had been separated from their parents and their parents had gotten out, but the kids remained. And Eric Little becomes the, their foster father. He, he really uh, ministers to them in, in wonderful ways. Towards the end of the war, actually five months before liberation of that camp, he is going to die of a brain tumor. Next slide. And um, the camp was called the Vice, the, the Vicean Internment Camp. And on February 21st, 1945, five months before liberation, he died of inoperable brain cancer. Now, the remarkable thing, which we didn't learn, <clears throat> in fact, his family didn't know about it until the 2008 Olympics was that China was very proud of him. He had been born in China and he had died in China and he had won an Olympic gold medal. So China considered Eric Little that their first Olympic athlete. And uh, and that led the Chinese authorities to uh, establish a monument to his life, and actually the University of Edinburgh helped to erect a, a place to hold that, uh, to mark that place. And, and then they revealed that the British government had made a deal with China, with Japan actually, to release Eric Little. And um, he could have gone home to his wife and children in Canada, but he chose to stay and give his place to a pregnant woman. And he died shortly thereafter. Last slide. His last words were its complete surrender. Eric Little learned about life that is really life. He, he learned that life is not just that which begins when we die, but it's that which, we begin, which begins when we place our faith in Christ and begin to live in surrender to his will. Let's close in prayer.
thank you, gracious God, for that place upon which we stand that we can look at the world with a sense of awe and wonder and enjoy its beauty and realize that that place of security, that place of comfort and hope is only made possible by you and what you have done for us. Help us, each one, to take that salvation seriously. To ask ourselves, do we have that? Can we stand and enjoy life that's really life? In his name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.